good morning. Good to see all of you today. Could you guys hear in the back? And in the front? And in the middle? Nice. Finally. Okay, good. Yes, uh, it's a blessing to have technology. But if you can see it underneath the speaker stacks, uh, did you uh, also notice this bit of work, artwork here? That's, that's pretty cool if you, if you run into Marta around here. Uh, her and a laser and some black paint are responsible for that entire mural, uh, which I think turned out pretty amazing. And for the eagle-eyed among you, you'll notice that we have Jesus, but we don't have 12 disciples at the table. And this morning, we're going to see why. We are one short. Uh, if you want to cheat ahead, I already know the answer. You can grab your copy of God's Word and turn with me to John chapter 13. Our text this morning is going to be John 13:18 to 30. As is our custom, we invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. As always, if that's a hardship, please don't feel obligated to do so. But as you're able, if you would join with me. And turning to John chapter 13, we'll begin in verse 18. Jesus speaking says this, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved, so Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus then answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. Now no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, Buy the things we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately. And it was night. Would you pray with me? Father, we've sung already this morning of your deep love in our time of communion. We have been reminded of the fellowship that we have with you and with one another, and that that comes through your Son, Jesus Christ. And I pray that as we study him today, that we would be drawn more into worship and that we would be drawn more into conformity so that we might be, as those sent from you, able to better bear the good news of a crucified Savior risen and reigning even this very day who extends good news not only to us but to all who will come and believe 
And this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we come, as we've been discussing the last couple of weeks, sort of to the gateway of this long conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples on that final night of his earthly life, uh, gathered there with his faithful followers in that upper room. And I can't help but notice here uh, just how well John has woven this story together to set the hero apart and to make the hero stand out. Uh, If you are a fan of of literature, of story, uh, and if you're not, I'll give you a chance to repent this morning. But if you're a fan of stories, uh, in the story arc of many heroic tales, there's a very common and predictable pattern. You have some major event, some, some trigger that incites the action. Maybe it's a birth, maybe it's a war, something that gets discovered, some prophecy, some thing happens that begins to set all of the pieces in motion. And that gives way then to the first act. And you know, this, will, this will ruin every, every movie you watch after this because you'll be like, oh, and then next, okay, yeah, I see what's happening here. But you have the first act that will unfold. The characters are established. It's usually a period of relative comfort. But it's leading to the point of no return. The point of no return. Circumstances will work in such a way that eventually the hero must rise and he must accept his quest and set forth. No turning back. And that leads then into the second act of the story, which follows the first and includes increasing challenges and conflict, things that need to be resolved, and the events that are set up in the second act are the ones that will precipitate the climax of the story. And they're being put into place and set into motion. And that all brings the hero to the edge of his great struggle, his great test, his point of proving where he will succeed or fail. And that's the point, before you get to the climax of the story, right at the hinge of the second and third acts, that many of the best stories have their emotional center. At around 75% of the way through a story arc, according to most uh, story arc textbooks that I was able to get a hold of, and ironically, we are almost exactly that percentage of the way through the book of John, you will find what is called the dark night of the soul. And this is the point in the story where the hero is confronted with the cost of continuing. Where he's confronted with what seems to be an insurmountable loss or realizes perhaps that he's been clinging to a lie and must confront the truth. But in some way, in the dark night of the soul, the hero feels that perhaps all could be lost, that going on could be impossible It is when his soul is shaken and he must choose, will I face this test or not? And I believe in the story of the life of Jesus, this is where we are at. We are beginning the dark night of the soul for our Savior. From our text this morning, up until when Jesus gets up from that last season of prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, there is this cloud There is this shadow over everything that happens. We are watching our hero confront the dark night of the soul. Jesus is fully aware of what he is about to experience 
and he is experiencing in his humanity the dread and weight of those actions. Many in this room today have experienced truly dark nights of the soul. Some of you have emerged back into the light. Some of you are still under shadow. Others may soon find themselves in such a season. When night falls, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus because He not only conquered death, He did so from within its very teeth. He faced His hour of testing, knowing what was coming, counting the cost, and yet set Himself with resolve anyway. The death of Jesus was at the intersection of the love of God, the hatred of Satan, and the wickedness of man. And it weaves together two plans that seemed to be moving in opposite directions. And I want us to notice and appreciate today how our Savior modeled facing just such a crisis. I think there's much for us to learn and to imitate, but we also need to come and watch our hero humbly because Jesus is the hero and we are not. He and only He has ever faced and passed such a test as this on His own. We can only imitate Him in facing what are by comparison far lesser trials and we can only do so by leaning wholly on His strength. And so when we look at this passage, I want us to learn much, but I also want us to remember only Jesus could do this. Only Jesus could have triumphed here. And so come with me to our text, to the dark night of the soul of Jesus, and let us marvel at our hero, and let us become more like him, looking at these twin plans weaving together the plan of God and the wicked plan of man with Satan at its helm. And we look first at a plan to believe, if you're taking notes today, a plan to believe in verses 18 to 20. There's a, four things I want us to observe about how everything that's happening, Jesus understood to fit into a very specific plan for a very specific purpose. But we observe, first of all, that this is a limited plan that Jesus is enacting here. This is a limited plan that's unfolding in front of our eyes because at the beginning of verse 18 there, you can see Jesus says, I do not speak of all of you. I do not speak of all of you. We continue the conversation from last week, if you recall, as Jesus was explaining the example he had set by washing the disciples' feet. And there was all the drama of that as Jesus assumes the posture of what would have typically been a slave and the disciples are going, what is going on here in their heads? And then Peter, of course, is saying what is going on here out loud. That's his specialty. And they, they're having now this conversation where Jesus is explaining to them, you are to imitate me because I am the master and I washed your feet and no slave is greater than his master. So if this is what I did, none of you are too good to do it either. If this is the example I set, you all must follow in that example as well. And then he concludes the lesson in John 13:17 when he said, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. The original language here gives the sense that Jesus is assuming the disciples in fact do know these things and therefore can anticipate those blessings, 
He's speaking if, and, and I'm assuming you are those who know these things, then you will be blessed if you'll imitate them. But that impression that they would have been given that, hey, we are, we're those who know, we're those who are following, that impression would have been not entirely correct, would it? Given who was in the room. And so Jesus is now going to clarify his statement. The lessons and the teachings and the blessings of this night are not for everybody in that room because there are those who are ready and able to receive from Jesus and there are those who are not. It is a sad reality that even today many will sit under the teaching of God's Word sometimes for years and hear again and again the offered blessing of loving and following God and yet reject it. It was true, even in the presence of Jesus Himself. We should not be surprised to find it in the church. The grace which God has extended is limited. It is not enjoyed by all. And why not? Well, Jesus goes on to explain. This plan that is unfolding is limited. but It's also a precise plan targeted specifically to a particular group of people. Continue on with me in verse 18. I know, he just said, those who know what I'm saying can be blessed. Now he's telling us what he knows. I know the ones I have chosen. But it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Here again in undeniable simplicity is that great doctrine we call election. The ones who receive the grace of God are the ones chosen by Him to do so. No man, no woman, no child this morning who has experienced salvation in Jesus can rightly say, it all began when I sought the Savior. It can only rightly be said, it all began when He chose me. So then, if Jesus knows exactly whom He has chosen, how did there end up being someone in the room planning to betray Him? Well, the answer is simple. But it's also very profound. Because everything fits into the plan and choosing of God. Absolutely everything. Including Judas. Why is there someone in the room who is a fraud? Because that's the plan. And it has been the plan from the beginning. Jesus quotes here from Psalm 41, specifically quoting from Psalm 41, verse 9. But I want us to read a few more verses from that passage to get a little more of the context of this heartfelt psalm of betrayal. This would have been the words that would have been in the mind of Jesus, the words that would have been in the mind of likely the disciples who would have grown up on the Psalms. In Psalm 41, beginning in verse 5, David lamenting and then using language that Jesus will quote here in our passage this morning. He says, My enemies speak evil against me. When will he die and his name perish? And when he comes to see me, he speaks falsehood. His heart gathers wickedness to itself. When he goes outside, he tells it. All who hate me whisper together against me. Against me they devise my hurt. 
saying, A wicked thing is poured out upon him, that when he lies down, he will not rise up again. Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. How uncannily descriptive these verses are, not only of the events in David's life, but of the events of this night in the life of Jesus as well. Judas didn't accidentally end up in that room. He ended up in that room because that where he was, that's where he was destined to be. In the plan of God, he had chosen those who would follow him. And also in the plan of God, Judas was fulfilling his assigned role. With so much going on, why is Jesus telling his disciples this now? Why is he interrupting his speech to discuss this? Well, we're going to see it's because he wants to make sure that when they look back later, they will realize that everything that is about to happen was indeed exactly according to a plan. And so he reveals that plan to them in verse 19. Look at verse 19 with me. From now on I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am. The plan of the Gospel is, is so mind-bending. It's so unexpected, right? It's not the story we would have written. Let's write a story about a hero who delivers fallen humanity. It doesn't look like Jesus. It doesn't look like an infant sent humbly from heaven, God incarnate on earth. It doesn't look like a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief with a common appearance that is not such that we would look upon him going about through Galilee and through Judea and Jerusalem preaching repentance for the kingdom of God is at hand. It certainly doesn't look like a man betrayed, assassinated by those he came to save. And Jesus knows that looking back, the disciples would be confused and at a loss to explain how all of these things could have happened. And so he's telling them now what to expect with the goal that they would then, when seeing the words of Jesus play out exactly as he predicted, have their faith increased. Have their faith increased. Many of your Bibles say something like, mine does in the New American Standard, you may believe that I am He. And that last word, he, there is in italics. In the original, the word he is not found. Instead, we see that, that intensified form we've seen a few times of Jesus simply saying, you may believe that I am. That I am. And I believe that this passage and a really cool situation that knocked a bunch of people onto their backsides uh, in chapter 18, that's going to be fun when we get there, are the two final times that Jesus is specifically using the I am construction to allude directly to his equality and identity with Yahweh, the great I am that I am. Jesus is evoking the faith of his disciples. They believe. right? He's like, I'm not talking to all of you. One of you is going to betray me. But to the rest of you, this is what I'm saying. Listen to me. I'm telling you what's going to happen before it happens so that even though you believe now, you will believe even more then. This is in part because of the plan 
that he is not only revealing to them, but he is going to be entrusting to them. He wants their faith to be strong because they're not only going to be a witness of the plan, they're going to become witnesses to the plan. And so we see a shared plan in verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. And this is the second of three times in just six verses that Jesus has used that truly, truly, amen, amen phrase to get our attention. The first was back in John 13, 16, when Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. And so Jesus is, as it were, returning to the topic of being the sent ones of Jesus. And having begun to talk about the responsibilities of the disciples, Jesus is returning to that theme and then will return again to it later in the teaching of this night. It's an essential theme. It's a central theme to what Jesus is trying to communicate to his disciples. Here's the truth you need to comfort your soul, to understand who I am, to better appreciate what's about to happen. Let me give you clarity on the plan of the gospel and on the coming of the Holy Spirit and how your lives are going to be entwined into mine and how you will be fruitful. But prepare yourselves to be sent out to go in my name. So closely, in fact, will they be associated with the plan of God that Jesus says, anyone who receives you, it is the exact same thing as receiving me. And anyone who receives me has received the Father. What an incredible privilege. Before we continue, I want to pause here for a few brief lessons. And the first is, is this. As we look at the incredible precision of the plan of God, nothing is ever out of control. That is the conclusion we must come to, is that nothing is ever out of control. Can things be out of our control? Certainly. Yes, anybody ever parented? Or had a puppy? Can things be unlikely to end as we had hoped? Often. Can things be very difficult to accept or seemingly impossible to understand? Very. Are things ever out of control? No. No. This is one of those great truths of the Christian faith which gives great comfort to us, especially in the dark night of our soul. And I think it's one of the reasons Jesus is teaching on this topic even as he is announcing his betrayer because it is one of those truths that in his humanity was studying his own soul is that even as he faced what was going to be a night of horrific suffering and betrayal and even facing the wrath of God, it was all part of the plan. It was all under control. And that must be one of those truths that we accept by faith. That the God we serve is the God who knows the end from the beginning, who causes all things to work together according to the counsel of His goodwill, and that therefore what I am experiencing today, as much as it might appear like a chaos storm, is in fact 
His perfect plan unfolding. And if we let go of that, it will be very difficult indeed to find firm footing for the soul anywhere else. Secondly, believers still need to believe. Believers still need to believe. As I mentioned, Jesus is addressing those who do believe in Him when He says His desire is that they believe in Him still more. One great blessing of an intimate knowledge of Scripture and a life of prayer is that our belief will be increased when we see the faithfulness of God to His Word. And I praise God for especially some of our older saints who can bear witness to this. Lives that they have spent living in the real world where they have had dark nights of the soul. They have weathered storms. They have been tested. It has not been all health, wealth, and prosperity. And yet they have been able to say, God is true to His Word. And He has done as He said He would do. And I would encourage you, for those of you who have gathered such experience in life, please don't be hesitant to share that with others. That may be a beacon in the dark for many. And for all of us, we need to know what Jesus has said. Jesus said, I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it happens, you will believe. And everything necessary, Peter tells us, for all of life and all of godliness has been revealed to us in this book. And as we know it and as we speak to our Father about what's going on in our lives, we will have the opportunity then to have our faith built up when we see God work around us according to His Word faithfully. Believers still need to believe. Our confidence still needs to be strong. Otherwise, the tragedy is we will often, in, the, in lieu of reading and actually knowing what Jesus has actually said, create expectations of God that are of our own making and then find ourselves constantly disappointed and perplexed that God is not living up to them. Finally here, we need to be ambassadors. Be ambassadors. Our lives of belief, truth-telling, of service and imitation of Jesus, these are all meant to call the world around us to believe in Jesus as well. If you think about what a privilege it is for a governmental ambassador to be able to go into a negotiation or go into an interaction representing the full authority of a sovereign nation. Like, that'd be kind of cool. You sign this piece of paper, and that signature represents all of the intentions of a whole nation, of a king, or of a government. And Jesus is saying, I'm sending you out as my ambassadors, with my good news. And when they receive you, when they will accept what you tell them, it is as though they have received me and the Father Himself. I think that should make us walk a little straighter, even around our homes and our neighborhoods, that we represent the King. And we represent the God of the universe. It's not our message. It's not our plan. But we are those who have been given the incredible privilege to represent it and to testify to it. And so I, I would ask you, where are you bringing the news of Jesus to a world that needs to hear it? I know some in this room 
that is through conversations with family members. And you have prayed long and sought long to share the gospel with those, even in your immediate family. For some of you, you have an incredible testimony in your neighborhood and you're reaching out to those that live on your street. We've got some folks here getting ready to hop in an airplane and fly to corners of the planet to preach the gospel. That's fantastic. This does not tell us where we must go, but that as we go, we represent Him. The plan of God in motion on this night is beautiful. In its precision, it's gracious in its revelation, it's powerful in its sharing. But these truths do not take away from the horrific way in which the plan is to be accomplished. And we now shift our gaze from the theology of God's plan to the experience of it. For Jesus, the cup of suffering from the Father was coming just as it had been planned, but it was still a very bitter cup. And that's why in verses 21 to 30, we look at a plan to betray. A plan to betray. And here we will look at another four characteristics as we study the wicked human side of this plan. We'll pull in some lessons here along the way uh, this time instead of waiting until the end. So don't let that overly distress you. But we see in verse 21, first of all, a painful plan. A painful plan. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit. This is the third and final time that John describes Jesus as being troubled in his spirit. We saw that first in John 11:33, and then again in John 12, 27. In his humanity, Jesus experiences the turmoil within his own heart as the weightiness of what is coming approaches. And in this instance, Jesus is not primarily responding to the suffering he will endure at the hands of his Father when the wrath of God is poured out on him. I believe that is primarily what he is wrestling with in the Garden of Gethsemane. I'm sure that is on the mind of Jesus, but the specific thing that is troubling Jesus that causes his countenance to change is given by Jesus himself. As 21 goes on, Jesus testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. I wonder if this statement was given after a moment of silence when those around the table who've been busy eating and chatting and kind of, what's Jesus talking about? I don't know, it's kind of hard to hear in here. All of a sudden notice just this change come over Jesus. See the heaviness of his heart and his face. And look up, and then Jesus tells them, one of you is going to betray me. Among those who truly, truly were to be sent out to preach the good news of Jesus, there is truly, truly a betrayer. We've known this as the reader since back in verse 2 of this chapter, when it said, during supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. But for the disciples... This is the first completely explicit declaration of Jesus about betrayal. The word betray can also be translated as hand over, to give over. Jesus isn't saying here just simply that he feels betrayed. Otherwise, he could have said that almost on a daily basis as his disciples foolishly failed in so many ways. It's not a description of his emotional experience. It is a description of actual, calculated offense directed toward 
him. He is about to be handed over. And very few things in life are more difficult than going through actual premeditated betrayal. Some of you have experienced that. Betrayal cuts deep. Our first lesson here, betrayal cuts deep. And it cut deep in the experience of our Savior too. Our family recently listened on audiobook to a biography of Corey Ten Boom. If any of you know her story, a Dutch woman born in 1892 whose family harbored Jews during the regime of Nazi Germany and were eventually found out, captured, and put into concentration camps. She died almost three months to the day before I was born, so I, I didn't get to cross over with her lifetime, but a, a truly remarkable woman who saw an unbelievable amount of horrific things. And listening to her biography, it was shocking just the amount of violence and deprivation and humiliation that she experienced in her life. And we actually found, given that she lived long enough to uh, overlap with some modern technology, we were able to find a video interview of her and listen to her sharing about her experiences. And it was amazing to see this woman speaking of God's goodness in her life and with a smile on her face and just very matter-of-fact about it. And then we talked to this person, and then a week later they were shot, and then we were dragged off here, and then they exposed us to all this horrific humiliation, and it was really dehumanizing, and then we went here, and we did this, and we did that. And it was all just matter-of-fact until she mentioned, and then there was the night we were betrayed. And I was surprised, even watching in the, uh, this little video, to see the shadows still come over her face when she spoke of betrayal. And then she paused and simply looked down and said, those were very hard times. Out of all the suffering and all the things that she had experienced, that was the most I saw her react during the entire interview. There's something about betrayal that cuts deep. I think it's, it's really in many ways the ultimate form of relational attack because it's hatred and lying meshed together coming under the guise of friendship and love. And it is so devastating when somebody hates you and seeks your evil but dares to look you in the face and calls you a friend. Betrayal cuts deep. But betrayal isn't as deep as God's love. One of the last things Corey's sister Betsy said to her before she died was, we must tell them there is no pit, no pit so deep that the love of God cannot reach them. And that's a truth that's easy enough to preach. But it's also a truth that women like Corey Ten Boom and Betsy Ten Boom proved in their lives in the midst of the most horrific suffering. God's love is greater. And the only motivation in this room on this night that is stronger than betrayal is indeed love. Tragically, Judas is so given over to his anger, his selfish disappointments, his desire for personal gain, that he is completely hardened to this last window of grace right before him. Verse 22, we see he is committed to his wicked plan. 
The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. The disciples are all now looking around the room. Who is it? You've probably seen this. Again, if you have children, one of you broke the vase, right? Was it me? Was it me? Was it me? Was it you? Was it you? Was it you? Right? That, that whole routine, that doesn't actually ever go away. Uh, that's what's happening. Some of you have seen this in your workplace, right? Our profits are down this quarter, right? Naturally, Peter, though, is the one who finally presses the issue. He waves his hand at John. John, John, ask Jesus, who is it? John uses the, the expression, the disciple whom Jesus loved, to refer to himself. He does that characteristically in this gospel He's among that inner circle of three disciples closest to Jesus. It's not a surprise that he is seated directly with Jesus. And as they are reclining at this low table, he's literally leaning against the chest of Jesus and able to just whisper things relatively discreetly to him. And while this is going on, the whole room is in a stir. The other gospels fill us in that they're having an extended conversation. Could it be you? Could it be you? But in one of the most absolutely callous things you will read in the pages of Scripture, Matthew 26, 25 says, And Judas, who was betraying him, said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. Can you imagine what it was like for Jesus to stare into the eyes of someone whose life he sustained with his own power and see that liar dare and he did nothing why because this was the plan he could have snapped him out of existence but he did not he had just washed his feet he John leaning back thus on Jesus bosom said to him Lord who is it Jesus then answered, This is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. Jesus responds to John's question with a specific sign. It's unclear if any of the others heard this exchange given the commotion in the room. But Jesus, when he had dipped the morsel, he took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Incidentally, as much as it depends upon you, disciple your children well so that if one of them turns into a betrayer and a murderer, you don't go down in history like Simon Iscariot couple lessons here. Sin hardens us against grace. Sin hardens us against grace. One of the tragedies of sin is that it lies to us just long enough for us to miss out on all the opportunities for grace around us. How often have you, in the hardness of your own sin, at the point at which you finally repented, looked back and seen so many opportunities God had put in your path for you to turn back? And that you had been so callous and hard. And Judas here can look the Savior in his face and lie to him even as he's reaching out and taking food from his hand. And yet we must have the honesty to admit that apart from grace we all betray or deny. There's the response of Judas which is to see and to know the Savior, but because He doesn't live up to your expectations, hate Him. 
And we see that today. People that come in and pretend to be among the followers of Jesus, pretend to be a part of his church, but in their hearts they have no part of him, and they dissemble and they lie and they divide and they seek to build a kingdom for themselves and they seek to tear churches apart. They seek to be an agent of chaos among those who are the Lord's. But think about this. It is also Peter, the one who is so concerned about who will betray Jesus, that is the one who will deny Jesus three times this night. I tend to think Peter doesn't actually hear the response of Jesus to his question, which is why Judas leaves with two ears (laughs) and not just one. Uh, If that's not humorous now, it'll get humorous later when we get to it. (laughs) Or it's just not funny. Beware the bitter or hardened heart that would seek to betray the Lord. Because such a betrayal may give way to remorse, but it's not a remorse that heals. It's a remorse that destroys, just as it destroyed Judas. But also beware the heart that would deny our Savior. And it is so easy to do that. It is so easy to do that. It's often been observed, sin is practical atheism. When we live in a way that is contrary to what we have been commanded by Christ, we are functioning as if we do not in fact believe that he is who he says he is. We are saying that though our lips may say we love him, our lives say not as much as something else. The conversations we're afraid to have, the stands that we're unwilling to take, the sacrifices we're unwilling to to endure, to do and to be what God has called us to be, can all be ways of us denying him. The good news is that unlike Judas, the believer, even though he deny, will either be drawn to repentance or drawn to heaven. So pick repentance. Judas in his hard-hearted rebellion, thinking that he was enacting his own evil plan, was in fact nothing more than a sad pawn for Satan a responsible pawn, but a pawn nonetheless. And that's when we finally see, in verse 27, a satanic plan. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Few of us, probably none of us, will ever attract the direct attention of Satan. We're just, frankly, not that big of a deal. There's only one of him. He's not like God. He's not omnipresent. He can't go around and harass everybody. But on this night... Judas was the strategic opportunity. And when Jesus addresses Judas and tells him to go quickly, it is now an evil duopoly, a wicked union of fallen man and fallen angelic being. Yet even here, Jesus is demonstrating his control and he is the one dictating the timing and the pace of events. Verse 28, now, one of those reclin- no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing because Jesus had the money box that Jesus was saying to him, but the things, by the things we have need of for the feast or else that he should give something to the poor. The disciples are probably still embroiled in their conversation about betrayal. They see Jesus leave and they're like, oh, I guess he had to go get something. But that's also part of the plan of God. I believe that even this distraction, even this milieu, Jesus allows and intends because it is his goal that none will interfere with the plan that must take place. A couple notes here as we get ready to close. Our adversary commands the willing. Our adversary commands the willing. 
John has recorded Jesus referring multiple times to Satan in this gospel, but always by the name devil, liar, or accuser. Only here do we read the title Satan, meaning adversary. Deception is certainly taking place, and that is always Satan's mode of operation. But the emphasis here is that Satan is the adversary. He is the one who goes against. And here now, when he is ready to take his decisive blow, Satan, the adversary, combines with the hard-hearted wickedness of Judas. And secondly, evil people do evil things for evil reasons, serving the evil one. And if I could have figured out a clever way to put more evil in that sentence, I would have, because it's a category we must not let go of as believers. Whenever we see wicked things happen, there's always a story. There are always circumstantial things involved, some of which may even be sympathetic. But we must always call evil by its true name. Judas was not just a poor, misguided, misunderstood fellow who just had a bad idea one night. He was somebody who refused to set his affections on the Savior who had come to die for him, who had served him, who had loved him, who had lived alongside him for years. He had chosen sinfully, wickedly, and with evil in his heart to betray the Savior, and that made him the perfect tool for Satan to use. Satan did not twist Judas to evil. He hopped on board the evil train and put more coal in the fire. And John then brings this scene to a close in a simple and yet poetically powerful way. And so verse 30, a dark plan. After receiving the morsel, he went out immediately and it was night. This Satan-possessed rebel immediately obeys the command of Jesus and leaves. It is the dark night of the soul, not only for Jesus, but for Judas as well. But what a contrast. Jesus has responded to his coming suffering with humility, service, and love for his own. Judas has shriveled up in his wickedness and abandoned the light, both figuratively and now literally. Never was a night darker than this one from a spiritual standpoint. John lays the fact simply on the page but after a gospel full of the language of light and darkness, its significance leaps from the text. There will be this shadow over everything that happens in this gospel from now until the resurrection. Betrayal is in motion. The light is being opposed and it is time for the darkness to reach its full strength. And as the music team comes forward and we prepare to close in a short song, let me leave us with this encouragement. The light will prevail. The night does not and cannot last forever. The hero wins. And in his victory, we win. The psalm that Jesus quoted earlier ends this way. You can see it on the screen. By this I know that you are pleased with me because my enemy does not shout in triumph over me. As for me, you uphold me in my integrity and you set me in your presence forever. Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen.
Would you pray with me? And Father, by this we know that you are pleased with us and that our enemy will not shout in triumph over us, those of us that have placed our faith in you, because you uphold us, not in our integrity, but on the merits of the integrity of Christ, who persevered and overcame on our behalf. And because of him and our trust in what he has accomplished, we indeed have that firm expectation that no matter how deep the night we experience in this fallen world, we will be set in your presence forever. And so we bless you, our great God, today. We praise you, the one who is from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen.